It's part three of Where the Road Takes Me. Well, as mentioned previously, the most difficult part of this programme is selecting what to omit, as I try and include as much as possible into an hour-long programme. Gerard Shannon, author of To Declare a Republic, the new biography on Liam Lynch, felt it was important to include these two items, planned and carried out by Liam Lynch and his Court No. 2 Brigade. The first was the Fermoy Arms Raid, carried out on the 7th of September 1919, which Liam Lynch took part in, and the second was the Mallow Barracks Raid, which he also planned and also took part in. important to remember because it's the first major engagement that the Irish volunteers had with the British Army and just think of it right there in the streets of Fermoy itself. So there's two British military barracks in Fermoy at the time some of the soldiers go to church the Wesleyan church there now a motor repair shop which you can still see the, the church building itself to attend mass and they're carrying their rifles and Liam Lynch and others in the brigade such as George Power and Moss Toomey and so on see this as an opportunity to get much needed arms for the brigade because RHHQ is not giving them these arms. So the morning of the 7th of September 1919, two cars are commanded for the operations, volunteers on the streets as well from not only the White Company but surrounding companies and some other brigades as well. One account has roughly over 70 overall involved in the operation between road blockages and so on. So the British soldiers are marching up to the church, Liam Lynch and others are in a car behind him, the car goes across the street, Lynch begins it by jumping out of the car and blowing a whistle, demands them to surrender, a fight ensues. Now it roughly lasts about two to three minutes the volunteers take roughly about 19 rifles there's different accounts of that but roughly around that one soldier Private William Jones 20 years old is killed and only one wounded on the volunteers side that's uh, Liam Lynch he takes a bullet wound in the shoulder now popular accounts omit the fact that it was someone on his own side who accidentally shot him you can see this in some of the witness statements George Power details this and Liam is actually so elated at the arms hall that they only notice he was wounded when they were driving down the road so they all pile into the cars and the other volunteers disperse and Liam Lynch is so elated and so excited that they got these arms that it's only kind of down the road they notice he's been wounded he hasn't actually felt the wound himself because he's so excited in the heat of battle and so on it actually takes him several weeks to recover it seemed to be a very close flesh wound that he that he got in his shoulder so it takes him several weeks to recover they move him around several brigades areas but you know he's still being informed what's going on and so on his, his brother Martin meets him uh, very briefly in a, in a place in Waterford actually and I've actually been in, in the library where he's held he, he was delighted to be <laughs> recuperating in a library where he could read more books and he, he mentions this to Martin a very very brilliant account like but uh, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a very important it's one of the most famous of the War of Independence and it kind of sets the standard for other brigades and we then see this reflected again in other operations we have the kidnapping of General Lucas in mid-1920 but particularly we have on the 28th of September 1920 the Mallow Barracks Raid now this was jointly planned by Liam Lynch and Ernie O'Malley who, the famous Ernie O'Malley who'd come down from our HHQ as an organiser and they planned the operation together now there was two Corps number 2 volunteers who actually worked as handymen early, but in the barracks itself uh, Willis and Booster and they helped the men gain access well, they helped the men get intelligence for it. And basically what happened was they walked up to the door and O'Malley pretended he was delivering an envelope. And when your man put his hand through, like, O'Malley shoves the door open and the volunteers run in. There's one uh, British officer killed. A lot of the other officers are out, out training with their horses. Again, same thing. Cars are brought in, loaded up with arms. They tried to set fire to the barracks, 
doesn't really work. But they got what they wanted. They got the arm cells. So again, this is the first seizure of raids from a British military barracks. And again, Liam Lynch is kind of showing the way for other brigades and so on. It's a brilliant example, like the Fermoy Arms Raid, of his military leadership. And again, it goes back to an early point he said, he never asked his men to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. And this gained their respect. I also think they kind of worried about him a little. There's a brilliant account by Matt Flood. He was a member of the Flying Column at Cork Number 2. The journalist Bill Hammond published a pamphlet in the early 70s of um, Flood's experiences. And he talks about when O'Malley got the door open of the barracks, Liam Lynch rushes into the door and he's nearly the first in. And one of the men to liberty nudges Lynch. So he's then the fourth in because they would have been conscious that we don't need him wounded again and out of action or killed. Like that was a worry too. So, but, but you know, I, I think it's just, it's a nice little detail I think that shows the affection they had for him. They're like, oh, we don't want him. If one of us is to be shot through the door, we don't want him shot, the one to be shot first. Like, you know, so very interesting. So I, I just think it's important to note these instances of his military leadership because this helps contribute to the prestige and respect that he has, you know, not only after, but like right through the Civil War and so on. Like, like he would have been seen as a serious man and a serious leader and one greatly admired by those under his command. By early 1923, Liam Lynch's forces are not winning the Civil War. There are approximately 8,000 of his troops up against the National Army, who now number 40,000. Apart from outnumbering the IRA, the National Army is by now a very professional force, backed by the British government with arms and supplies that the IRA would never have had. Add to that the demoralising effect that 50 to 60 executions of anti-treaty prisoners would also have had on their IRA comrades. Lynch issues orders in response to this to have them carry out mass shootings of pro-treaty TDs and supporters. They're not really carried out. I mean, Sean Ailes is on the 7th of December is the most tragic example of that, of course. But um, Lynch is receiving reports from Moss Toomey's adjutant and Toomey says to him, you know, there's not much to report these days, you know, with our prisoners and that and there's not many operations being carried out. And it's important to know this. Liam Lynch knew they were losing, but he's not interested in kind of ending the conflict. He wants to find some means of the fighting to continue. I mean, he was very used to the hardened guerrilla life. Like, I mean, the War of Independence wasn't an ambush every week. It was, you know, rough and tumble life of a guerrilla, like a lot of uh, times where nothing is happening. But I mean, this is affecting the IRA overall. So he's not really thinking like a commander in chief. He's thinking as the guerrilla commander, which is probably part of the issue with his military thinking during the Civil War. But he agrees to a meeting at the IRA executive meeting. So this is the leadership of the IRA to meet in the Naira Valley or initially it's outside the Naira Valley. Then it's inside it. They have to move. There's a ma- massive national army sweeping the area. So the idea of this conference is they're going to sit down and discuss how the war is going. They haven't had a meeting since the previous October and it's just how the war is to continue. And Tom Barry first puts forward a motion at this meeting that in the view of the leadership, they cannot win the fight so they should end it. And this is rejected by the executive as a majority. Another motion is then put forward to continue fighting. And by a majority of one, which is Liam Lynch's vote, he's the last to vote, they vote for the fighting to continue. Now, Liam Lynch is dependent on two things. He's thinking two things. Set up a new Republican base in the West, probably similar to what he had in the early days of the Civil War in the South and also to acquire heavy artillery often for just ground artillery mountain artillery that he sent one of his top corps commanders Sean Moylan to get from the United States and Germany and Moylan's in Germany at the time and Liam Lynch is saying to those on the at this executive meeting and you can read the minutes I know UCD are going to publish them online very shortly that it's because of this heavy artillery that we could win the day or at least we could regain momentum in the fighting and this is what seems to carry the vote for the fighting to continue this is noted in the min- in minutes themselves 
So Liam Lynch agrees to a meeting which is to be held on April 10th, 1923. He agrees to that meeting because he knows that a majority of one in a vote is not overwhelming and he needs to sit down with his men and discuss and agree to the next course of action. He said to Kathleen Barry, his courier and very close friend at this point, he knew there was three options open to him and Mita Ryan references this in her book, she seemed to interview Kathleen, to dump arms, to negotiate peace or to continue fighting. And of course Liam favours continue fighting. Now this is what he says to Barry like ahead of this planned meeting on the 10th of April, but it doesn't happen that way. On the 9th of April, the night before, he one of his final communications, he says to Pam Murray, the OC of Britain, if we stand united, victory is certain. Again, he's, he's conscious that he needs a united movement and a united leadership, as in, in the IRA behind him to continue the fight. On the morning of the 10th of April, he is in a safe house at the base of the Knockmanton Mountains. They get an alert that the National Army are sweeping through the area. And again, it's extraordinary that they were even having this meeting, but Lynch knew the seriousness of the situation that they had to have this meeting to kind of get everybody on side. Like, he, he was well aware of the intelligence of the sweep in the area, but it's very close to them, and he is going with a group up the mountain that include the likes of Frank Aiken, Sean Hyde, Bill Quirk, these, these are prominent uh, IRA leaders, some on the executive, of course. And, you know, Madge Cummer, his, his second in Dublin says that maybe Liam Lynch wasn't as fit as he was during the War of Independence you know he was often like in, in his general headquarters for much of the previous months in Dublin this suggests as well he had a flu so Sean Hyde said to Mita Ryan that he was the one leading Lynch he was behind the group leading Liam up the mountain as they were trying to escape there was a gunfight for about 20 minutes between the IRA officers and the National Army Column coming up the mountain they cross an open field there's a lull in the shooting across the field and one National Army officer fires at the group in the field and Liam Lynch is hit. Now, he was the tallest of the group, maybe moving the slowest. He was probably the easiest target at that distance and he falls. Frank Aiken and the others carry him for a short distance. He says, look, leave me. Like, he's wounded very badly in the abdomen. It's very clear he's seriously wounded. He's in a lot of pain. He asks um, Aiken and the men to leave him, take his papers and take his gun because if he has his gun, as under the existing free state legislation, he is liable to be executed. That's why Erskine Childers was executed. So they take his gun, they take take his papers and they leave him on the mountain and he's found by the National Army column led by a man called Lieutenant Lawrence Clancy now Clancy had been a veteran of the IRA in Tipperary he and his two brothers his two brothers have been killed during the War of Independence Clancy of course had gone pro-treaty and uh, they think they got Dev Lair initially because you know Lynch like Dev is a tall bespectacled man you know thin features and that they think they have uh, Dev Lair and Liam Lynch says no I'm General Liam Lynch and Clancy goes are you the bloody chief of staff the irregulars irregular being the term for propaganda term for Republicans and Lynch goes even in utter pain he goes I am Liam Lynch Chief of Staff of the Irish Republican Army like making that distinction clear even through the pain he was suffering get me a priest and a doctor I'm dying he didn't like that term did he the regulars no he was disgusted with it as as a lot of them were because it was a way of the free state government denigrating them because it it was was decided by Geroyd O'Sullivan who was kind of director of propaganda on the free state side that they're not going to refer to them as IRA or Republicans in newspapers or kind of government statements they're irregulars like it's it's just it's just kind of dehumanising them as, 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 as a force and kind of diminishing their importance really but like in the, in the view of Lynch, you know, and I would share this view, I mean, there were the IRA on the continuous thing from the War of Independence. I mean, it was the pro-treaty side that become a new military force, the National Army and so on. I mean, I think the Republicans tried to counter by calling them the Green and Tans. That doesn't really stick, but I think that's a very, you see it in some um, prison artwork and so on, the, the you know, the, the brutality of the Green and Tans and that. But um, Clancy and his column bring Lynch down the mountain with great difficulty. You know, he was six foot, which is very tall for the time, actually. With great difficulty, Clancy and the National Army men under his command bring Liam Lynch down the mountain and take him to Welch's pub, which is now Nugent's pub in the village of Newcastle. There, they lay him on the couch in the pub. 
you know, he can still actually visit the couch there that he's laid out on. And him and Clancy have a conversation before he's brought to Clonmel Military Hospital. He gives Clancy some belongings to give to, you know, his his, his uh, brother Mar- Martin Lynch and his sister uh, Margaret Mullins and that. And Lynch says to Clancy, bury me with Fitzgerald or Fermoy, the greatest friend I ever had on this earth. And Clancy says, oh, is that Mick Fitzgerald, the hunger striker? And Lynch is really surprised that Clancy knows who Mick Fitzgerald is. And he says, are you one of the old crowd, the IRA, I mean? And Clancy says he was. And and he said he had two brothers, you know, killed during the War of Independence. And him and Lynch kind of cry a little and they shake hands. And Lynch says, I'm glad one of the old crowd got me. Um, this is all a pity. It never should have happened. I'm glad now I'm going from it all. Poor Ireland, poor Ireland. This is in Clancy's account, of course. And Lynch dies several hours later in Clonmel Military Hospital and uh, yeah it's just uh, it's just a very kind of poignant note very uh, just you know that these two men who don't know each other before now find this kind of brief kinship and I, I, I didn't get space reference in the book but um, Clancy writes these really beautifully written letters to Flory O'Donoghue Lynch's close comrade of first biography from the early 50s and you know he, he says to Flory like say a little prayer for Liam Lynch and a little prayer for me and he says Lynch and Fitzgerald are good men gone and a glorious cause before us uh, their comrades who are now in arms against each other like Clancy seems to for pro treaty man seems to he seems to greatly regret the civil war and Liam Lynch's death like it's a very moving thing he writes to Flory O'Donoghue and we're very lucky that Clancy wrote a very detailed account of the operation to kind of capture Lynch and find him and so on. So yeah, it's a very vivid and I think important account of Liam Lynch's final errors. Goes without saying that you're very proud to be his grandniece. Absolutely. They did what was needed at the time and he did in another letter, he said he felt they hewed the way for politics to follow. So I suppose at that time there was no Irish government to represent Ireland so that was their way of you know they were very very hard and difficult times um, at that time and um, certainly everybody did what they could to to better the situation. The present generation shouldn't be judgmental because we don't know how difficult they were. Absolutely and as you said look it depends everybody has, has their own tradition and certainly whether it's through schooling or anything else there's been very little spoken or there's very little education and information up until now really on the War of Independence and the Civil War. So I suppose it's up to all of us really to educate ourselves as to what happened and certainly, as I say, the War of Independence was the biggest item there and it was everybody regretted the whatever side you're on, the, the uh, Civil War. Nuala O'Reardon from Michels and Bandon, grandniece of William Lynch. To declare a republic, a new and a comprehensive biography on Liam Lynch is written by Gerard Channon. It's in paperback with many accompanying photographs. Published by the Marion Press, it's available in all bookshops. My thanks to Dulo O'Reardon and to Gerard Channon for joining me. And thank you for spending an hour of your Sunday evening with me. Love Songs with Rob Allen. It's on the way. Afternoons at 8 on C103. But until the same time next week on Where the Road Takes Me at 7, this is John Green wishing you a safe and a very pleasant week.